getting to read a letter from Paul, this seasoned leader in the kingdom, to this young leader, Timothy, who has spent a lot of time with him traveling. I'm popping for that, and I don't know why, but. And um, he has been appointed now as the leader of the church of Ephesus. And we're getting to see, and Paul is imprisoned again, probably for the last time. And it won't be long after this that um, Paul dies. And so I find it really interesting to be able to see what it is that Paul thinks is so important to teach this young leader. And he starts this chapter by reminding, sorry, this is going to drive me bonkers. Okay. We're going to hope it works. Move on. Paul starts by warning, by reminding Timothy. He says, remind people of these things. Remind the people of Ephesus. Remember yourself and remind the people of Ephesus of this gospel that he just finished describing in our last passage last week. That gospel is Jesus. Flesh and blood, God on earth, Jesus fully entitled to the earthly throne of David, living in cosmic self-denial, a real death, a real suffering, and a real resurrection that gave the world access to power that forgives sins and can literally transform the human heart. Remind them of these things. And then he warns Timothy, in the last day there will be terrible times. There will be divisive leaders, leaders who go on and on about useless things, even harmless ideas, people who love themselves above everything else. They love money, they're treacherous, they're betrayers, they're deceptive, they're loveless, they're slandering. And those people will be in the same house with brothers and sisters who worship God with a pure heart. Not only will they be in the same house, but they themselves, these incredibly dualistic people, will look a lot like, like almost exactly like, leaders who genuinely love God and the ways of the kingdom. Godly, admirable-looking people in the church, here among us, who seem strong and knowledgeable and together, faithful to worship with a lot of ministry know-how. He says those people will have a form of godliness while at the same time deny its power in their life. And this caught my attention as it did Elisa and maybe the rest of you. When I first read it, I just thought those people, ooh, like when I first read it about the quarreling and this list of people, I just thought, oh, those people are terrible. The worst, the most. And then I got to verse 5, and I realized those terrible people, they don't look like the terrible people I imagined. They look like me. They look like you. But over time, something has happened inside of them. Paul says, don't forget this gospel that accomplished a real victory over death for us. But there will be people 
who look like the kingdom, who have actually denied its power. And I don't know if by deny he means like they don't believe it exists, but like denied access, refused, turned down, turned away. The power of this life-changing gospel to have access to their own heart and their own mind and their own actions to transform them. Paul is warning Timothy about people with full-blown hypocrisy and the road that gets us there. It's a clear it's a clear word to us that there is no neutral ground when it comes to holiness. We are either moving towards godliness or moving towards wickedness. We are either moving towards the kingdom or moving away from the kingdom. There is not a stagnant place. It's not like, you know, those of you who are into lifting weights and losing weight where you get to your ideal weight and you just, you're maintaining. It's not like that. You're either always growing or moving towards spiritual atrophy. It's like a path that we go on. Jesus described two paths, right? There's one that is wide, and lots of people are on that path, and it leads to all kinds of destruction and death. And then there is this narrow path, and it leads to life. The road that gets us to hypocrisy, it's not neutral. There's not one in between the narrow and the wide. It's, we're either moving towards Jesus and life, or moving towards destruction and death. And the road to hypocrisy is incremental. We're either incrementally fleeing from sin in our life, or incrementally slipping off the path towards death. The way James describes it, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then that desire, after it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The road to hypocrisy is an incremental road. And it starts with our own desires that we start to get enticed by and dragged off the path by until it conceives something in our life. And I don't know, maybe you're like me and Elisa, and you read this passage and you're like just warning lights are going off, or maybe you read the passage and you think, yeah, I, I understand that, but I don't think that's me right now. I feel pretty solid when it comes to holiness in my life with Jesus. I feel pretty good, but what about two years from now? What about five years from now? The end of this passage tells us the people are the most harmed when we slip off the path are the spiritually vulnerable. That weird thing about worm their way into houses, of gullible women. It's about the fact that women weren't spiritually trained. They were spiritually vulnerable. They didn't have access to training about the gospel. The people in our lives that are most harmed when we're dragged off are the spiritually vulnerable. So how do we know, microchurch leader, if we're slipping off the path, if something is growing in our life that five years from now is gonna be like gangrene, infecting us and killing all the tissue in us, and the people around us. How do we know? 
And I guess maybe those are the, these are the two major things I want to wrestle with this morning. How do we know when our holiness is slipping? And what do we do about it? How do we know when our holiness is slipping? And I wonder if there isn't something about what Paul is doing in this, this letter to Timothy that can't serve as like a litmus test for us. And there were some things that stood out to me that I thought, oh, I wonder if we could keep a check on these things. Would it help us to be able to know if I'm still on the narrow path or if I'm somehow slipping off of that path? And the three things, there are lots of them in the passage, but the three things that stood out to me that I'm going to talk about a little bit this morning have to do with our conversations, our words, and how we use them, our fascinations, the things that just we get caught up in, and our affections, the things that we love. I want us to just consider these three things as a litmus test and to be able to ask ourselves, are they moving us toward and producing stuff that is kingdom or moving away from and producing stuff that is more like the world? So let's start with conversations. You guys were already really interested in that this morning. There's lots of instructions in this fairly short passage that reference words and conversations and what we say and what we talk about and how we disagree and what we say about others. He talks about quarreling and foolish and stupid arguments and slander and unloving and being unreconcilable, boasting, sarcasm, lying, betrayal, words, and the way that we use them matter. Our conversations are not neutral. They are either pursuing Jesus' heart or opening the door for division and harm and broken relationships. Words, they are the thing that define that space between you and me. Words clarify or they confuse, they build or they destroy, they edify or they harm. Words assume the best or they assign blame. Words can be patient or rash. Words can listen or accuse. They are not neutral. They are taking us down a path, one path or another. And it's, it's interesting to me, I think we all know what it feels like when that one sentence pops out of our heart, just slips out of our mouth, and it hooks us, and it leads us down a path. Something we didn't even know was in our heart, and just blurted it out, and it catches us, and it leads us down a path. Recently, there was a young ministry leader who took a new ministry role. Um, the, the people who had led the ministry before her built the ministry, they um, had to step out of that role, and and she was invited to pray and ask the Lord and discern if she should step into that role. And she did that. And she felt like the Lord said, yes, this is the right thing. Step into it. She visited the underground recently. And um, she was talking to some of the staff, maybe Keisha. And Keisha was just like excited. Like, hey, how's it going? It's so awesome. You're doing this new ministry thing. How's it going? And she just sort of snapped back. Well, I didn't really have a choice, did I? And it was like the air got sucked out of the conversation. <laughs> And they stood there, she was, the, the leader was telling me about it recently, they just stood there looking at each other, both wide-eyed, and knowing like, oh, what was that? Like, what just happened between us? It surprised the person who said it when this bitter confession just popped out. And there is a way that that moment could have played out. She could have been hooked by that phrase. She could have started down that path and said, yeah, I didn't really have a choice, did I? Those people who left, they did X, Y, and Z to me, and that was really unfair. 
And they are so fill in the blank. And the people who asked me to pray about this role, I said I wanted it and I thought God told me that, but I don't know, looking back, maybe they didn't really care about me. Maybe they just cared about the ministry. Maybe they didn't really care about me. There's a way that something can come out of our heart, be expressed in words, and just get its hook in us and drag us away. This leader didn't do that. She and, and I think Keisha both immediately realized, like, there's something going on here. And she went and found a space to pray and asked Jesus about that. But it's that fast, the way words can lead us down a path. And Paul seems especially concerned with arguments and what they lead us to. There's the kind of arguments that happen that are like the obvious jerky arguments, like someone does something and it was like a real jerk move and you just know that and you're mad and you talk trash about them because of that. I was driving down the road one day um, on Southdale Mabry. I was going to pick up some of Craigslist because I like Craigslist. I feel like Lucas and I have that in common. And um, I wasn't quite sure where it was and I was looking at my GPS and I was looking at the road, you know, doing this and some car just like cut me off and I was like, what just happened? And while that happened, I missed my road, and I was sort of frustrated with him. And I'm looking at him, and I'm realizing he's sort of frustrated with me. Like, he's sort of doing some stuff in the rearview mirror, like I did something. And I'm like, what the heck is your problem? You're the jerk. And we pulled up to a Lowe's, and I was like, I don't need to turn around because I missed my road, right? So I turn into the Lowe's, and he turns in before me, and he parks in a space, and I just try to drive behind him because I'm just turning around to go out. I think he thinks I did something to him, so he starts backing his car out at me as I come by him like looking at me in the eye, backing his car at me. I was like, what the heck is going on? I'm getting out of here. So I drive out of the parking lot and he starts following me, like aggressively following me. And we all have two different modes when something like this happens to us, flight or fight. Maybe a lot of people are flight. I don't feel that way. So I'm like, you're a jerk. And I'm saying a lot of choice words. I'm definitely slandering this guy at this point. Like, so I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, how am I going to get away from this guy? So I see a Starbucks. So I pull in. I'm like, I know what I'll do. Pull in the Starbucks. He's following me fast. So I pull up into the drive-thru right by the windows of the Starbucks. I throw my car in the park, and I jump out, hands in the air, like, what is your problem? Like, just as he drives by, he pulls his hat down. He puts his head down. Like, there's stuff like that that happens. It's just like, you're a jerk, and I'm going to talk about the fact that you're a jerk. And we, that, that stuff happens in our friendships even. We do stuff to harm each other and it's like, that was sucky and I'm gonna talk about how it was sucky. And usually what happens after we calm down is that immediate feeling of regret, like, that was dumb. Like, yeah, you were a jerk, but I probably shouldn't have said that stuff about you. It wasn't really true. And it's like easy to sort of repent and be like, I really said some things about you that were unfair. Like, you've actually been a great person to me for a long, long time. I shouldn't have called you that name. It's easy in those moments to recognize the wrong and to repent. But what do we do with our more serious disagreements? The ones that are about important stuff with the people that we love and respect. The ones that don't have any quick resolutions. The ones where you might actually even sort of be right in the disagreement. How do those conversations start to pull us off the path? We start to find it hard to be kind to that person, maybe. Like genuinely kind, not like Southern kind. I come from a Southern family. All Southern people are kind <laughs> until you walk away. 
But Paul says, be kind to everyone that you disagree with. Maybe we find it hard to be genuinely kind. Like we are still friends, kind of kind. We start to feel resentment towards that person. We start to name and to characterize people based on our judgment of this argument. And we slander them in more subtle ways. We ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. We misrepresent another person's position on a topic without really determining what they actually think about it. Or when they make a mistake, and we start to rewrite history and to ascribe that mistake to all of their previous dealings with us or that topic. We blow out of proportion another person's sin and we talk about it and we impact the way other people view them. They're all forms of slander that harm our own hearts, our own view of people, and other people's view. Sometimes we do it out loud. We say those slanderous things, even the really subtle ones, out loud to a friend behind closed doors in a quiet conversation. Sometimes we do it in public in front of people. But we also do it in our own hearts and our own minds. I don't think I'm the only one, but we get into arguments and we replay those conversations. Over and over again, we have that argument with that person in our head, and we get better and better in that argument, and they get worse and worse. (laughs) And we start telling (laughs) lies about them. We start telling lies about that person to our own heart. And we begin to reshape what we think about that person. Most slander comes from the obvious, blatant sin done against us, but there is a way, even when the judgment about that person is partially true, that we still slander them. I'm, I'm a little, I might be a little bit right about this person's mistake, but do I have the right to try and read their mind and decide that I know what motivated them or what led to this moment or what's going on in their heart and their mind? And I have to be honest, maybe this is one of the most difficult challenges from Paul in this letter for me. Maybe it is for you. In the midst of this kind of important disagreement, the way to choose the kingdom, the path to the kingdom, is to be kind to everyone. He says, able to teach. I kept thinking about that, and I think he means that when you are still in the midst of that disagreement, that you are still able to be patient and discerning and objective and to walk in real friendship with that person as you try to resolve it. And he says to do it without resentment. The original phrase actually means to bear evil, to bear wrong without resentment. I think that's so hard to do. And I admire people who find a way to do it. I have two friends that have known each other for a long time. And I'm not going to lie, I think they disagree on almost everything. Like, they agree on the essential, important stuff about Jesus, but, like, practical, everyday, important life stuff, like, I don't, I, they, like, 
85% of the time, probably, would choose the opposite of the other person. And yet somehow there is still like real affection between them, real love, laughter, hope for that friendship. Maybe not unity on the topic, but unity with each other. And that's the thing that Paul is calling us to. Our words and our conversations, they matter. They are leading us down a path. And if we pay attention to them, they will let us know if we are slipping in our holiness. I think another way that we can know if our holiness is slipping to, is to look at our fascinations. I picked fascinations because I was thinking about that phrase that said to avoid ungodly chatter. I was like, what does that mean? The word chatter literally means incessant talking about trivial things. Like, I'm not going to lie, I think we all know somebody. Just like incessantly talking about trivial things. Going on and on about things that don't matter. We've all met them, but the truth is sometimes we all do it. We all just get wrapped up in stuff. Like 90% of the conversations that we have probably don't have anything to do with anything spiritual or kingdom or Jesus. Sometimes we just get distracted and fascinated by weird things in life. Or maybe it's like a normal thing, but you just get wrapped up into it. Mostly for me, it's weird stuff. Like a year ago, year and a half ago, I don't know why, guys, I got really obsessed with Scientology. Exactly. I mean, I just, I don't know if I just had more free time in my life, probably. I don't know what happened, but I read like two, or I watched two seasons of Leah Remini's TV show about Scientology. I watched like three documentaries on it. I read like 10 massive major journalistic writings on it. I listened to a book called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely about this journalist in the 60s, this tiny petite woman journalist who went after Scientology and they basically just like went for her, like got her accused of a federal crime of terrorism and put on trial for it. And so wrecked that she almost committed suicide. I was like in there, I was just like so into it. And I was like, oh my gosh, these people are crazy. And, the spiritual bridge to freedom and all the money and all the crazy stuff that's going on there and I would just talk about it to anyone. I tried to show some restraint honestly, but if it popped out and you seemed a little bit interested, like an hour would be done like that. I mean, I just I knew everything. I knew all the lingo. I I even one night, I'm not going to lie, I I was took a drive to pray because I do that a lot and I ended up in Clearwater. And I'm having a conversation with the Lord. And then I'm like, I'm in clear water. I know what's in clear water. <laughs> the Mecca of Scientology. And I was like driving around. I maybe even got followed at one point. There's like all kinds of cameras down there. Even last night I was talking to Monica in jail and I just probably went on for like 20 minutes because we were laughing so hard about it. But sometimes we just get wrapped up in stuff. And I don't know why. Maybe yours aren't as as mine, but <laughs> we get distracted and we get carried away, whether it's the stuff we're watching on Netflix, the latest shows or movies or this workout or concert we went to or the trip that we took, and we just, we get distracted by it. And we find Jesus showing up in our conversations less and less. 
There's stuff we do or that we like, that we invest time in, that are hobbies that are not pulling us away from the kingdom. They, they may actually be part of how we Sabbath or build community or love our families. But I think we know the difference when something moves from a healthy outlet to something that starts to eclipse our time and our attention. And all we have to do is take a look at it. What are we caught up with in our idle time and our passing conversations? Does Jesus still come up often for you? Does his name naturally come out of your mouth in conversations? When you're just hanging out with friends or your microchurch or your community or your family, it's an easy litmus test. Do I talk about Jesus when I'm not on doing ministry? The stuff we get fascinated with and caught up in, it's not neutral. It is leading us down a path. It is either leading us towards Jesus or distracting us and often distracting those around us from him. I think the last way that I see in the passage to know if we were slipping is to look at our affections. There's this turn when we get to that part of chapter 3 where Paul starts using the word love. Lovers of self, lovers of money, people who don't love God. And he puts love of self first in the list. And I think most people would agree that he does that because all the other stuff in that list comes when we start to love ourselves more than we love anything else. At the core, people who had a form of godliness but denied its power were people who loved themselves more than they loved anything else. And it just didn't happen like one day. What we love is not neutral. It is leading us down a path. What we love, it gets in us and it starts to reshape our core motivations in life. There is a way to love ourselves that leads us further and further away from the heart of God. Those things that we start to get motivated by, they shape our decisions and they lead us further and further away from God. And those motivations will always come out eventually. It may not seem important today, but it will come out eventually. I mean, we are living in the hype of the self-love movement. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's out there. It's all about love, loving yourself, taking care of yourself, making sure that yourself is good. You know, the whole like Instagram selfie thing, that is all born out of the, this sort of like fascination with self. And it's like a quick way to self-love because you just take that picture and a bunch of people start hearting and heart, 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 heart. And you start to feel good about yourself for like five minutes until you see someone else's picture who's like prettier than you. We're like at the height of that right now. And the self-love movement was actually born out of the self-esteem movement that came out of the late 80s. There was this guy, Vasco, in California. He was a politician in the late 80s. And he sort of was running for office, and he got elected. And he was sort of this grew up like repressed, straight-laced Catholic home. And he got elected to office, to the Senate. And he showed up in his, his suit and his tie. And he was just like anxious every day. People just saw him like pacing up and down the hallway, just like, I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't think I'm the right person for this job. And he was just so like ridden with like what he would call so, you know, low self-esteem. Just felt so bad about himself. He was just like, I really need to get some help. So he went to his priest and that priest put him onto this humanistic psychologist, Carl Rogers, and he started to get mentored by this guy. And this guy started talking about self-esteem, like it's all about self-esteem. We've heard this, right? Like, 
if you can just feel good about yourself and think well about yourself, then you know, you're going to be able to accomplish anything that you want to accomplish, and your life is going to be really good. So he started working on self-esteem. He started feeling good about himself. And he started showing up in like Hawaiian shirts to the Senate floor, like unbuttoned a little, with like gold chains in his like hairy chest, you know, and like coming in to the Senate, you know. And he became so convinced that this self-esteem thing was so important that he started making like um, proposals for projects around self-esteem to the Senate and trying to get money and budgets for it. People just thought he was crazy. Like all the news outlets were just giving it to him in the news. Comic strips were like making fun of him for weeks or whatever. This was before social media. I guess comic strips was the way. And people were just like, this guy is just like some crazy hippie from California. What the heck is going on? But he was like just determined, like, no, I'm gonna prove to you self-esteem is a thing. It's gonna like cure our social ills. He was so convinced that low self-esteem was the source of a huge array of social issues. There's unemployment, educational failure, child abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, gang warfare. He became so convinced that raising the population's self-esteem would act as a sort of social vaccine to cure all those human ills that are in our heart and in society. But no one believed him. But he sat on the board of a certain university and he went to them and he said, I want to do a research project. I want you to help me do some research to see if there's a correlation between self-esteem and improvement of the human, human condition. So he's on the board, he has some control over the budget and the money on the board. They say yes, they get together a team of researchers, and these researchers go to work for two years studying self-esteem. Studying self they finish the study, they call him in the room, they give him the results for it. He comes out and he publishes this statement in the media saying that uh, there were these great correlations, positive correlations between self-esteem and the improvement of the human existence and researchers have said it, and it caught on. Like this university study turned the tide in self-esteem movement. All of a sudden, all kinds of people were giving him spotlight. Bill Clinton, Barbara Bush, Colin Powell, Oprah Winfrey, everyone was talking about it. This study came out from this university, and it's all about self-esteem now. And, pro and schools all through California started implementing self-esteem programs. Even like courthouses, when people would come to court for crimes they did, they did what they were supposed to do, they got like a little keychain or something that was like, good job, you did it, you know. <laughs> Self-esteem movement just exploded. And we're still living and seeing the impact of that, that project toward a state of esteem. The idea that we really need to care for ourselves. Get all those negative people and situations out of our life. We don't need critics, they just bring us down. You just need to go live your best life now and don't worry about all those other people. And the irony problem, the tragedy, is that this quasi-religious movement that was supposedly about ridding us of all of this wickedness that's in our heart, in our society, was born out of that same wickedness. It was all based on a lie. He said he was motivated to find the truth about what would help human beings, but what actually happened when those researchers called him into that meeting was that they told him there is no correlation between high self-esteem and improving your life. We don't see any, two years, we don't see any correlation between it. But he came out and he lied. And because he was on the board, and because he had control of the money, people became silent and complicit with him. And no one wanted to say, that is not true what he's saying. And three, four decades later, we're still living under this false assumption that if we just love ourselves, our lives will get better. And he wanted to say that it was about the truth, but I think in the end, 
him lying proves that it was really about him. It was really about success. It was really about proving something to the world. What we truly love will always come to the surface. Self-love most often starts with entitlement. Entitlement, it leads us to the beginning of all kinds of discontentment and justification for sin. It often starts with this small phrase that comes up in our heart. I think I deserve. I deserve rest because I've served all these people. I deserve success. I've been at this for a really long time. I deserve to be treated better. I've put a lot of things, a lot of time, a lot of investment, a lot of heart into these relationships. And slowly that entitlement grows in us. We begin to turn away from the narrow path of self-denial. And that Philippians 2 way of Jesus to become a servant of all, even to death, the two, our lives, and the way of Jesus, they just become in total opposition to each other. The more our love for ourselves grows, our grip tightens, and it's hard to hear anyone who calls us to deny ourselves for the kingdom. I think there is a kind of care, maybe for our lives and our person, our heart, our mind, that is kingdom. Things like Sabbath and inner healing and self-awareness and gift discovery. And I guess the question is, how do we know when that thing that we're doing that looks like self-love is kingdom or if it's pulling us off a path? And maybe part of the way we know is if that thing leads us back to the people and the places that God has called us to, to lay down our lives again, then it's probably kingdom. If it helps us to get whole and full and able to go and pour ourselves out to love other people again, then maybe it's kingdom. But if that thing is just cutting us off from other believers, from worship, and pulling us away from the people that God has broken our hearts for, Maybe it's not kingdom. There is no neutral ground. We are always moving towards or away from the kingdom. What we love will always lead us closer to Jesus or further away from him. We're either growing in love for God or growing in love for ourselves and the world. And it's easy to just look maybe at these three things that I pulled out and to take a quick audit of our hearts and to know, are we slipping? Are there early signs in our life? And what do we do with that? Paul says when you just see a glimmer of these things in your life, he says cleanse yourself. Flee. Like, you only flee something if you're, like, really in danger. He says flee, run for your life. Like if even one ounce of slander comes out of your mouth or deception or you start to notice that Jesus isn't really like in your week anymore. He says run from it like your house is on fire, like a bear is chasing you, like a great white just appeared in the water. Run for your life. Cleanse yourself. Confess. Repent. And get back on the path. He says pursue Kindness and righteousness and faith and love and peace along with others who worship Jesus. If we want revival, you guys, if we want to see the people in our microchurches 
surrendering their lives to Jesus, to lead them well, to love them well, to not harm the spiritually vulnerable among us with our own hypocrisy, that holiness is important. We have to get serious, we have to get radical about cutting the things out of our life that lead us down that path. It's like an infection that you just, you've got to take the whole round of antibiotics. You've got to go all the way. You can't get near the thing that infected you ever again. It's like my sister-in-law who got breast cancer, and she got at the same age that her mom had died from breast cancer. And so when it showed up, she just said, take it all. She's like, you know, give me a hysterectomy, give me a double mastectomy, like whatever in there could bring this thing back, take it all. Because she had seen what that kind of disease could do to a person. We have to get radical in that kind of a way. The stuff we look at, you know if you struggle with some sort of like porn addiction, that there are things that you look at that they don't make you immediately turn to something like porn, but it gets in your head. You see that movie, that explicit scene, it gets in your head. Or when, when someone harms you and you start to feel resentful and you start to nurse that thing and that conversation just over and over and over in your head. Maybe it won't cause you to harm that person right away, but it will, it will start to grow and come out. We have to get in there and get these things out of our lives. Get radical about uprooting sin. This is the tension for me. I'm going to start to close if someone wants to come up, maybe one of the musicians. This has been the tension for me in this passage. And Paul gives this command to cleanse ourselves, to repent and to confess and to get ourselves clean so that we can present ourselves unashamed as unashamed workmen, people that can be useful to Jesus and the kingdom and this broken world, to cleanse ourselves. I don't know if you've ever tried to cleanse yourself, if you've ever tried to root sin out of your life. But the reason we came to Jesus in the first place is because we had a moment where we realized, I cannot clean myself. This is frustrating for me about the passage. Because there is work that we have to do. We have to notice. We have to take captive our thoughts. We have to watch our actions. We have to look in there and figure out what is motivating us. We have to do that work. But there is this thing that happens when you confess and you repent. You fail again. People that struggle with addiction, you know this. You try and you get clean and you do well. And then... You have a setback, and you're like, crap, okay, I'm going to start again. Confess, repent, and I fail. Thank God I cannot cleanse myself. And I think maybe this is really the key to embracing the transformation of the gospel in our lives, is that this cleansing process that we do in ourselves, it, it creates this existential crisis in us. That we, in and of ourselves, we can't uproot unholiness and ungodliness. We need something outside of ourselves. It creates a desperation in us to realize, Jesus, I need you. Like, whatever it takes. My heart, just cut it wide open. Lord. Whatever it takes, get this thing out of me. gospel and the power of its transformation in your life 
is through this existential crisis of sin and repentance and our inability to really clean ourselves. It brings us to a desperate place of needing Jesus. And the truth is, is that God is always giving us invitations to holiness. There are always things happening in our lives. We don't always recognize them, but things are happening to us every day that is an invitation from God to get on this path, this journey to holiness. Maybe it's a longing to just go away, a sense of missing God. The ministry is going well, but it's, there's something empty in you and you just miss him. Maybe it's a level of exhaustion that no one close to you knows about yet. Maybe it's some sin pattern that you used to be able to control that has started pressing in on you again with more urgency and more frequency. Maybe it's feelings of hopelessness and depression that threaten to pull you under. It could be an uncomfortable relational or ministry dynamic that you're trying to avoid or a person who has hurt you. Whether that hurt is real or perceived, I don't think it matters. It has the same impact on us. Some betrayal you're experiencing or disagreement that you're having that isn't resolving itself easily or quickly. Some personality that you're just really struggling with in your community or your microchurch or your job or your family. And just, you sort of just can't stand to be around that person. It could be a major transition in your life, whether it's expected or unexpected or significant loss or disappointment of some kind that you're experiencing. These things are happening to us every day, and often we see these things and we just think there's something to get through, to fight through, to push aside, to problem solve. But often they are stirring up stuff inside of us, like anger and fear and anxiety and insecurity and grief defensiveness and self-righteousness and pride and boasting and comparison. And there is an invitation for Jesus, from Jesus, for us to turn our eyes towards him, to pour out our hearts to him, to hear him speak words of truth over our lives and those people that we're dealing with, to stop looking at the situation or that person and to look with Jesus at what is happening inside of us, to acknowledge our brokenness and our sin that's being on earth and to confess it, to ask for that grace and that mercy that we so desperately need, to repent, to choose, to get back on the path. I have to stop doing circus tricks with the meaning of scripture and turn to the plain example, the basic commands of Jesus to love, to forgive, to hope, to be patient, to be kind, not resentful, to protect the reputation of others, to watch over our words and our conversations and our thoughts. Last week was an invitation to suffer with Paul through all the external threats that were facing Ephesus and the church. And this week, the call to cleanse ourselves, it's an invitation to self-denial, to suffer as Paul did through all the internal threats that are facing us in our communities. 
Some of you, you know exactly what that situation is, that relationship is in your life that God is trying to use to bring some real transformation in you. Maybe there's something in the way that you're doing arguments, something that has caught your attention or distracted you, something that you've just started to love more than you have loved him lately. And there is this call from Hebrews to fix your eyes on Jesus. To follow this narrow kingdom path to him until he eclipses all of the other things, all of the other desires that are driving you in life. In Mexico, there's this ancient city called Teotihuacan. It's a pyramid city. The pyramid of the sun is there, the pyramid of the moon. The pyramid of the sun is like the second largest pyramid in the world. The pyramid of the moon, it, it, it sits at the end of the city. And there is this large mountain behind it that seems as big as any horizon that you could imagine. And when you're standing at the front of the city, the pyramid of the moon is so small. And there is a path through the middle of the city to that pyramid called the Avenida de la Muerta, the Avenue of the Dead. And the way they designed this ancient city was so that if you walked this path, you would walk flat ground and you would walk upstairs and downstairs. You'd walk flat ground and you'd walk upstairs. They designed it so that you could see the waxing and the waning of the moon, the pyramid of the moon, the moon as you approached it. It's ingenious. So I was walking it the first time and I was so caught up trying to discern the waxing and the waning of the moon as I walked this path to the pyramid that I didn't really notice what was happening until I got up close to it. And when I got up close to the pyramid, I looked up and I realized that that massive horizon of a mountain that was behind it had disappeared. And all I could see now was this pyramid, this thing that started out as just like a beam sitting at the end of the city had totally eclipsed the mountain behind it. This is what it's like to fix our eyes on Jesus and to take this narrow path towards holiness. It is a point of reference outside of ourselves that we walk towards. We have to fix our eyes on him until Jesus eclipses all of our desires, our desire to be right, to be understood, to be taken seriously, our broken and frail perspectives of each other. We have to walk towards him until he eclipses all the strange and funny and weird idol fascinations that we amuse ourselves with, until he eclipses our love of our own life, our desires for success and the dreams that we have for our future. There's a bunch of stuff that is gonna die along that path. I woke up this morning and I just thought, the name of that road, the avenue of the dead, it sounds so morbid, but the truth is, this path towards holiness is a path of self-denial. And there are a lot of things that are gonna to have to die on that road. But that narrow path, it leads us to him. It is the way that we get to present ourselves to this king who has rescued us that we love, unashamed, work 
workers who are useful that still five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now on our deathbed can find ourselves laboring beside Jesus for the redemption of the people that he loves in this world. As Lucas comes to lead us in communion this morning, I wonder if you would just close your eyes for a minute. Imagine yourself standing with Jesus, looking at your life. If you can do that, imagine yourself standing with Jesus at a distance, looking at your life together. Your life this past week or month or year. Invite him, look with him at the words that you've used and the conversations that you've had. Your thoughts towards the people that you've disagreed with. Look with him at the stuff that has distracted you, what has been motivating you and gripping your heart. And ask him this morning to point to something. Jesus, what's been pulling me off the path? Confess it to him this morning. Don't allow that thing that seems so innocuous right now to linger in your life. Don't allow that desire to entice you. Don't feel apathetic about it right now because that desire will give birth to sin in your life. And that sin will lead you to death. Ask Jesus what it is this morning and receive again the mercy and grace that he has for you.